We're looking at the 20th chapter of Jeremiah. I'm calling it the prophet and the priest. Jeremiah chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Pashur, the son of Emir, the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. What things? All of the stuff in chapter 18 and chapter 19. In verse 22, it says, or in verse 2, it says, Then Pasher struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. And it happened on the next day that Pasher brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then Jeremiah said to him, the Lord has not called your name Pashur, but Magor, Mizabib. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of this city, all its produce, all its precious things, all the treasures of the kings of Judah. I will give into the hands of their enemies who will plunder them and, and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pashur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity you shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. Jeremiah continues the eighth sermon. Like I said, it began in chapter 18 and continued in chapter 19. As a matter of fact, you'll remember Jeremiah introduced the parable of the potter's house in chapter 18. And at the potter's house, Jeremiah saw the pottery molding a pot because of the clay's imperfections. Then Jeremiah hears the word of the Lord. And Jeremiah is told by God that the Lord will soon remodel his sinfully marred vessel, Israel. The sermon moves from parable to plot in chapter 18, verse 18, to Jeremiah's prayers in verses 19 through 23. And then in chapter 19, Jeremiah continues his sermon with a series of judgments, and they become a picture of grace and judgment. And since God is the potter, we learn something about God, that he must of necessity be a person. Clay can't mold itself. Only God has the power to guide our lives. And since God has both power and a plan, coupled with the power and the plan, he also has the patience to make sure that the plan comes to pass. And by the way, when you get to chapter 19, the vessel's hard. It can no longer be molded. And like Samson in the Old Testament, when a vessel refuses to yield, sometimes God will take that vessel and smash it. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 19. God wants us to be useful vessels. A vessel doesn't manufacture anything. A pot only receives a clay vessel only contains. A clay vessel can only receive and contain and share. And it becomes a type and a picture that we, like clay pots, have in this earthen vessel. We have treasure, Paul talks about in the New Testament. He says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the glory would not be our own, but God's. And guess what? All God asks is that we be available and clean and empty. And so again, breaking the vessel became a type and a picture of judgment. And now the sermon moves on to the people's reaction to Jeremiah's 
sermon, a high-ranking priest arrests and imprisons the prophet in verses 1 through 6. And then we see Jeremiah's response to the persecution. He's going to seek refuge. He's going to run to the Lord, just like what we were singing about. He is a refuge and a deliverer, a hiding place, is the Lord God Almighty, it says in verses 7 through 18. And so we begin with the high priest's confrontation in verse 1. Look what it says. Now Pashur, the son of Emir, the priest, who was also the chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. By the way, the Hebrew name Pashur could mean ease or comfort or deliverances all around us. Now, this is going to be important later on when we contrast the new name that he's about to receive. The name could also be an Egyptian name. And by the way, if it's an Egyptian name, it could mean my portion belongs to Horus. Now, we know that the name Pajur is a very common name in the 5th century B.C., Emir means sheep or lamb. And he was one of the original governors of the sanctuary. If you go all the way back to First Chronicles chapter 24, verse 14, Emir is one of those sons of Aaron who are a part of the Levitical priesthood. And so here, Pajur is called the chief governor which has caused some people in the past to believe that he was the high priest, but he's really not the high priest. As a matter of fact, if we were going to give him a name, he would be the chief of police of the temple precinct. In other words, his job is to maintain order in the temple. His job is to perhaps suppress unpopular opinions His job is to arrest the people who show up and make a scene and create conflict. That's his job. And so in verse 2, it says, Then Pasher struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. It's possible that he himself struck him, or it's possible that he had subordinates do the job, because if you're the chief of police... You typically don't beat the people. You have hired people who beat them on his behalf. I remember talking to a chief of police one time, and he said, Chaplain, there's no beautiful way to uh, beat a man with a stick. It's an ugly thing. Here, Jeremiah is called, and you may not have noticed this, the prophet. It may have just slipped in. You you knew that he was a prophet, but this is the first time in the book of Jeremiah that he is called Jeremiah the prophet. And by the way, from here on out, it will be a name that will be used quite a bit. He is put, it says, in the stocks that were at the high gate of Benjamin. And the word stocks can mean several different things. It could mean a small room where he's put in like jail and cramped. But in the 5th century B.C., when they would have stocks, probably you've seen images growing up of the Puritans. And you've probably seen pictures where people have their hands in holes and they have their head in holes and they have their their feet in holes. And and they're there and it's sort of like two pieces of wood and, and they're clamped down. In the 5th century B.C., that's not how stocks were made. It would have been a very gigantic log or a piece of wood. If you want to get a picture, picture a great big log, okay? Now, as you're picturing the log, drill a hole in the log. And then drill two more holes in the log and then two more holes in the log and then stick your head in there and stick your hands in there and then stick your feet in there and then tie them down. And you get an idea of what's going on. You see, the word translated stock in the Hebrew language, it meant 
to twist or to turn. That's the idea. Jeremiah is whipped and beaten. How do we know? In Deuteronomy chapter 25, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. And in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, it gives the list of what happens if someone disrupts worship. It's at the temple. It says, quote, if there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows, 40 blows he may give him and no more lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. It appears that the maximum penalty is 40 lashes. Did Jeremiah receive one or two or 20 or 30? Just how severe was his crime? We're not told. But we're told that he is whipped and beaten. He's put in the stocks picture, the log at the Benjamin Gate. The Benjamin Gate, by the way, was built by King Jotham in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 35, and Ezekiel chapter 9. It was probably one of the temple entrances, and it would have, the Benjamin Gate would have been the gate that faced north. And the reason why it faced north, because that's where the province or the tribe of Benjamin would have been facing. And he's placed at this gate, but it's supposed to serve as a public warning. And so there is Jeremiah, his head sticking through the log, his hands sticking through the log, his feet sticking through the log. And he's twisted and in pain. And in verse 3 it says, And it happened on the next day that Pashur brought Jeremiah out of the stock. So he's in this piece of wood. Overnight, And then they let him go. And then Jeremiah says to him, the Lord has not called your name Pashur, ease, comfort, deliverance all around, but Magor, Misabib. I know you are, but what am I? I know it sounds like name calling. What do you mean? What is Magor, Misabib? Well, well, we'll talk about it in just a moment. Because the beating and the imprisonment doesn't cause Jeremiah to be silent. He continues to preach about the coming judgment. And now Jeremiah gives this high official a new name. Instead of ease on every side or everything's coming up roses, magor misabib in the Hebrew means there's terror on every side. The idea being no matter which way you look, horror, terror, problem, terror on every side. Here's the idea. The idea is that one day in the not too distant future, the family of Pashur, they're going to look to the left and they're going to see terror. They're going to look to the right. They're going to see terror. They're going to look straight ahead. They're going to see terror. They're going to look behind them. Terror, terror on every side. And in verse 4 it says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself. You have to understand the irony here. Pashur, now with his new name, terror on every side, Magor Mizabib. Remember, it was his job to arrest people who were making a scene on the temple. It was his job to punish evildoers. But now he's going to be punished. It's hard unless you understand the irony. He says, I'm going to make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. And they shall fall by the sword of their enemies and your eyes shall see it. In other words, when Jeremiah is making this prediction, this isn't some philosophical or theological notion that's going to take place eschatologically at the end of days. But guess what? This guy is going to experience 
real pain and real judgment. That's what it means when it says, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. So in what way do you suppose Pazur is going to be a terror to himself? I'm going to suggest to you that he's going to experience profound regret. You know, it's one thing to make fun of a person. And it's another thing when that person, everything that that person says begins to come true. If you continue to go down this particular path, if you continue to go down this particular direction, you may find yourself without a wife. You may find yourself without a husband. You may find yourself without a family. You may find yourself without a job. You may find yourself in this particular circumstance or this particular circumstance. And so please stop. Cut it short. Stop. Turn around. Go in a different direction. And the haunting voice of Jeremiah will be remembered. He's going to be captured. He is going to be carried away. And by the way, before we come to the end of the book of Jeremiah, we're going to see the prophecy come true. God will use Babylon to execute judgment. The enemy will conquer the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Some most are going to be killed. Some are going to be captured. Others are going to be exiled. And then the Lord would allow the enemy to plunder all the wealth of the nation, all of its valuable resources, all of its treasures. And in verse 5 it says, Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of this city, all of its produce, all of its precious things, all of the treasures of the kings of Judah. I will give into the hands of their enemies who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. In other words, whatever forms of wealth that they thought that they would be able to protect, whatever forms of wealth that they thought that they would be able to preserve, they wouldn't be able to preserve it. And in verse 6, and it says, And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you prophesied lies. Apparently, he wasn't just simply the chief of police. He wasn't just simply the person who exercised law and order on the Temple Mount. Apparently, he was one of those people in chapter 14 who prophesied. He wasn't simply a priest, but he was also a prophet. And as a prophet, he said, peace. And Jeremiah says, war's coming. Prosperity. And Jeremiah says, you're wrong. It's adversity and difficulty. And you remember, according to Deuteronomy chapter 18, the punishment for a person who prophesied falsely was death. And he will die. And by the way, it was a bitter tragedy for any observant Jew to be buried in an alien land. We know that the New Testament says that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. G.K. Chesterton said, quote, Jesus promised three things to his disciples that they would be completely fearless, that they would be absurdly happy and in constant trouble. In the world, you'll have tribulation. It would be of good cheer. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. The Bible does not teach that if you say what's right and you do what's right, that if you always say what's right and do what's right, you'll experience a lifetime of carefree, problem-free existence. You see, the Bible doesn't say, well, if I do everything that's right, if I say what's right and I think what's right and I do what's right and I exercise all the right things. Is it possible that you can say, do, and believe everything that's right and still bad things could happen to you? What do you think the answer is? We live in a fallen world. Bad things can and do happen. Jeremiah will experience pain and problems. 
the Lord invites both him and us to obey him and to walk in holiness and righteousness. But guess what? Most people really don't want to. Because the moment you say what the Bible says and the moment that you declare what the Bible declares and the moment that you subscribe to the promises of God and the principles of God, there are going to be people who resist you. And so. The prophet will complain, basically, in verses seven and eight and 14 through 18. And look at what it says in verse seven. It says, oh, Lord. You induced me. Some translations say, oh, Lord, you seduced me. Some translations read, oh, Lord, you deceived me. By the way, is God a liar? What do you think the answer is? No. The Bible says that God is true. The Bible says, let every man be a liar, but God will be true. So when it says, oh, Lord, you induced me or seduced me, the word that's used there is a word that was used in the Levitical law to describe a man who unlawfully seduced a virgin. The implication is almost blasphemous. Oh, Lord, you duped me and I was persuaded. By the way, this is the last of Jeremiah's recorded confessions. And the confession will consist of a prayer in verses 7 through 12, a brief psalm in verse 13, a grievous lament in verses 14 through 18. Jeremiah seems to be complaining. He's saying, Lord, you tricked me. You tricked me. You betrayed me. This is a horrible thing that Jeremiah is saying. He's crossing a line. Have you ever prayed that kind of a prayer? Well, Lord, wait a minute. I feel like I've been sort of duped. I, you know, I prayed the prayer that Gino talks about. I prayed to receive Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. I, 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 I decided that I would go to church and I would read my Bible and I would do the things that Christians do. And all Hades is broken loose. I thought my life was going to be better. And it's worse. You said I was going to have a full life, but now I feel like my life is empty. I had friends before and now they've left. All the parties are gone. It just doesn't seem like it's any fun anymore. You induced me and I was persuaded. You're stronger than I and I prevailed. And you prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. In other words, part of the point that I think that Jeremiah is making in part. Remember early on in the book of Jeremiah, God called Jeremiah. I'm calling you, Jeremiah, into the ministry. Really? Yes. What does that mean? I have a message for you. Okay. What's the message? Um, the northern armies are going to come. Uh, Babylon's going to basically invade the place. Everybody's going to die. And they're going to be taken into captivity. This is not a popular message, right? But this is the message I'm giving you. The implication being Jeremiah seems to be, be complaining. He seems to be complaining that. That his call isn't real. In other words, why did you call me, Lord? Why am I subjected to this constant ridicule and abuse? Is this one of those situations where Jeremiah is going? Did I really hear from God? Is my call real? Is the message real? And remember, when, when he balked earlier on in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord gave him several infallible proofs. Yes, I'm calling you. This is your job. I'm calling you into the ministry. I'm going to place my words inside of your head and inside of your mind and inside of your heart. But Jeremiah is going, okay, I've said what you told me to say, and I did what you told me to, to do, and nobody's changing. And all that's happening is I'm being subject, subject to constant abuse and ridicule. So, the Lord thoroughly convinced him earlier 
And Jeremiah is saying, well, wait a minute. There seems to be a problem here. I'm constantly being rejected. I'm constantly being ridiculed. I'm constantly preaching. There's no fruit. No one's listening. Lives aren't changing. No one's responding. As a matter of fact, instead of people responding and hearts changing and lives being transformed, the fruit of his ministry seems to be humiliation, mockery, ridicule, and a daily dose of persecution. Jeremiah needed what so many men and women often need. A reconfirmation of God's call. A recommitment to God's message and God's mission. Wait a minute, Lord. Did you really call me to work with these people? Lord, did you really call me to speak to these people? Lord, I know that you've placed me in this particular family with my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my family, my friends, the students, the people I work with. You've placed me in a particular situation to do a particular job according to the message and the mission and the gifting that you've placed in my life. Have you ever wondered about God's call in your life? Has God really placed you in the position that God has placed you? Does God really have a plan for you? Does God have a ministry for you? Does God have a message that you're supposed to faithfully deliver? And if that happens, aren't people supposed to be wonderfully, magnificently, and eternally changed? So Jeremiah is in big pain. In verse 8 it says, For when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. That that expression, I spoke out and I cried violence and plunder. It may be a reference to the prediction of Jerusalem's ruin, his repeated condemnation of the social injustices that were taking place all around him. The idea being I constantly reminded them of what you told me, violence and plunder. There's a reason why all of this has happened. And so Jeremiah is basically saying, okay, let's revisit the message. I faithfully warned and proclaimed the message of judgment. So God says, did you give the message of judgment? Check. And um, I've been oppressed and ridiculed and mocked every day for carrying out God's will and speaking his message. Check. And then Jeremiah reminds the Lord that his messages have made Jeremiah a household name and a household joke. In the ancient world of late night humor, when people would stay up late at night, they'd go, hey, did you hear the one about Jeremiah? Did you hear the one about the prophet who said this and how it didn't come true? And then there's a word of constraint. Look what it says in verse 9. Then I said, I'll not make mention of him, nor speak any more of his name. I'll just shut up. It doesn't make sense. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire. Shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. God's rejected servant purposes in his heart. Okay, I'll just keep my mouth shut. But silence brings no peace. The more silent he is, the more something wells up inside of him, and it's a desire to speak. Jeremiah desperately wants to quit the ministry, but he cannot. And it's hard, perhaps, for some of us to relate, unless you've ever been in a position where you thought, I just want to give up. 
I just want to stop. I, I want to stop telling my friends about Jesus. I want to stop telling my family about Jesus. I want to stop telling the people at work about Jesus. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I got an email today from a friend who was one of the premier chief scientists and engineers for JPL working on the Cassini project that sent a satellite out in outer space. And he had published some articles on, on intelligent design. He had made some intimations that he was a Bible-believing Christian. That he believed that the Bible was true and that, that, that Jesus Christ was Lord. And he was reprimanded. And he was told that if he ever talked about this stuff again, that he would probably lose his job. And he went to the law because he was being harassed and persecuted. And at this very moment, at this very moment, his case is being adjudicated in an Orange County courtroom. And the judge is making a decision whether or not that he's been fired inappropriately. Jeremiah couldn't keep his mouth shut. He wants out of the ministry, but he can't leave. God's word burns inside of him like a fire. He can't just simply hide the word of God in his heart. He can't just simply keep it for himself. He knew, he knew that he couldn't stop sharing the message that God had placed inside of his heart. And that's what happens when you really know and love the Lord Jesus. He places a message inside of your heart. And it's a, me it's a message of hope. And it's a message of redemption. And it's a message of re reconciliation. And you begin to realize that there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. There is no other message that will result in a person experiencing life and cleansing and reconciliation with God. And so he likens God's word to a burning fire. Think of all the metaphors and symbols used in the Bible to describe the word of God. Remember, James calls it a mirror in James chapter 1, verse 23. In other words, the Bible is something where we begin to see the reflection of our real circumstances. Elsewhere, Jesus calls it in Matthew 13, a seed. The, the Bible's called water in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, because it washes and cleanses us. It's called a lamp. It's called a sword. It's called gold and silver and milk and meat and bread and honey and... A hammer. And now Jeremiah calls it fire. C.S. Lewis made popular the expression, either the Bible will keep you away from sin or sin will keep you away from the Bible. It will burn you. Someone once cleverly gave God's emergency numbers. Maybe you'll walk into a particular place and I've seen on more than one occasion, someone said, uh, these are God's emergency numbers. When in sorrow, call John 14. Uh, when you're lonely or fearful, call Psalm 23. Uh, when you want to be fruitful, call John 15. When you have sinned, call Psalm 51. When you're bitter and critical, uh, call 1 Corinthians 13. When you are in danger, call Psalm 91. When others fail you, uh, call Psalm 27. When you need personal assurance, call Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 30. When the world seems bigger than God, call Psalm 70. In Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3, G. Campbell Morgan said, 
There's one sure and infallible guide to truth and therefore one and only one corrective for error. And that is the word of God. And I know, I know that for many of you, it's a tremendous sacrifice to come to Bible study. I'm glad you're here. But I got to tell you something. If the only source of Bible study that you have is on Sunday morning or on Wednesday night, you are impoverished. You know what I'm hoping? I really am hoping. I am not hoping that I become or this Bible study becomes the source of sustenance in your life. What I really, really want for you is every day for you to open up your own Bible. I want you to open it up and I want you to read it for yourself. Because there's going to be times when there are going to be numbers that you're going to need to call. Look carefully at the verb weary. Where he says in verse 9, I was weary of holding it back. In the Hebrew language, it's a simple sound. One of those onomatopoeia words. It's the Hebrew word. You know what it means? It means to struggle to the point of exhaustion. That's what that word means. In our culture, in our society, we have a word. We call it dog-tired. Have you ever been dog-tired? Where all you can do is just, you feel frozen. You're on the couch. And it's time to get up and you, and you go, I can't move. You know, you need to lift your hand to turn the alarm off. And there you are in bed going... I can't move. I'm done. I can't move. That's what it means. He's weary to the point of exhaustion. Shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back. And I could not. When I was in high school, <laughs> I had a girlfriend. And she had the most bizarre laugh that you could ever imagine. And she hated to laugh because it was so weird. When she would find herself getting ready to laugh, she would purse her lips, she would take two fingers, she would cover her mouth, and she'd go... She she had to keep it in, and then when she couldn't stand it anymore, she would just let it rip. That's exactly what Jeremiah is describing. I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to keep my mouth shut. And all of a sudden, I just found myself going, mm, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. There's a true and living God who's willing to forgive your sin and who's willing to redeem you. <laughs> and so, in verse 10, he says, For I heard many mocking fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him and we will take our revenge on him. Understand what's happening in verse 10. He says, I heard many mocking and all of his friends, family, relatives, everybody mocking. Oh, here he comes when it says fear on every side. It's Magor, Mizabib. It's the same name that he gave to Pashur. But it's a different context, and so it has a different meaning. In other words, the family and friends gave Jeremiah a nickname. 
And the way that we would translate this would be, Here comes old doom and gloom. Here comes Mr. Death and Mr. Destruction. Here comes little Mr. Christian and Miss Christian. Here comes Bible Susie and Bible Thumper Sam. Here comes Praise the Lord Charlie. Oh, here he is. Praise the Lord. And that's, that's what they're saying. Jeremiah shows up and they go, Mr. Doom and Gloom, Mr. Death and Destruction, he's here with another message. And in verse 11 it says, but the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. How do you go from, he tricked me and he deceived me to, he's with me. He's mighty and awesome. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They'll be greatly ashamed for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. Jeremiah reminds himself. The Lord is with me. He's really here. He's really with me. Jeremiah knew the Lord was with him and walking with him, supernaturally protecting him. Jeremiah knew that both his message and cause was just that the enemies of Jeremiah and God would stumble and fall, that one day God would punish them with eternal doom and gloom. And people will make fun of you and they will isolate you and they will marginalize you and they will scream at you and they will laugh at you and they will ridicule you and all the while you need to have a, a quiet place that you can go to and go I know that the Bible's true and I know that Jesus Christ is Lord and I know that the story of the cross remains true that people who want to experience life and love and redemption and reconciliation if they'll go back to their Bible if they'll read the old old story that it still remains true and in verse 12, it says, but, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for I've pleaded my cause before you. In other words, Jeremiah is praying for vindication. Why? Lord, you know the truth. You know what's real. Do you understand what's happening with Jeremiah in the midst of persecution? He's doing what each and every one of us should do in the midst of persecution. He's making a run for it. He's going to run directly into the arms of the everlasting God. He is going to find in the Lord an ever-present help in time of need. You are my strength. You are my deliverer. You are my rock. You are my shield. You're my strong tower. The Lord is the one who will be the place of confident rest. God tests the hearts of the people. Verse 13, he says, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of evildoers. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be delivered from my enemies. Is that what you do in time of pain, in time of trial, in time of sorrow, in, heart, in, in time of heartbreak? Do you praise the Lord and worship the Lord? Jeremiah praises the Lord for his deliverance. He praises the Lord because he delivers. Note what it says in verse 13. He has delivered the life of the poor. Here, I think it means the poor in spirit. Remember, it's talked about in the New Testament. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are impoverished and they have nowhere to turn to but to God. And so here, when he says he has delivered the life of the poor, I think that what he's making reference to are the true believers. And so Jeremiah experiences deep emotion. And the range of his emotion go from joy and praise. 
as he contemplates the triumph of the Lord over his persecutors. And then he has this deep depression, despair, shame. There is this sense of foreboding and darkness. And in the midst of that deep shame and deep despair, he turns to God. He prays all the bitterness out of his soul. He confesses the dryness. And God answers the prayer, but it becomes a type and a picture for each and every one of us. What do you do in that dark moment, in that despairing moment, in that what feels like a defeated moment where, you're, where your world is caving in around you? And he turns to the Lord. It becomes like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember when Jesus is facing the cross and he says... If it's your will, have this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus is going to face death, a painful death and a humiliating death. But after the painful, humiliating death, a resurrection is coming. God's going to turn death into life. God will triumph even when it looks like total defeat. And in that pit, in that dark, dark tunnel, Jeremiah begins to crawl. In verse 14, he says, Cursed be the day in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. It means exactly what you think it means. He curses the day that he was born. The sentence could come right out of the book of Job. How dark is it? It's very dark. How empty is it? It's very empty. How painful is it? It is absolutely painful. But you know what? You know what you don't see in the text? And I need to tell you this. There's not even a hint of suicide. Nowhere does Jeremiah say, I'm going to kill myself. But make no mistake about it. He's hurt. He's hurt in the worst way. In verse 15, he says, let... Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father, saying, A male child has been born to you, making him very glad. In that ancient culture and society, the guys didn't always hang out with the mom. There was no Lamaze classes, and, and uh, ancient people in Israel didn't go, Okay, now, breathe, breathe. Yeah, push, baby. It's gone. Yeah, okay, here comes the baby. Yeah, dads just sort of split the scene. And when the dad split the scene, though, when the man or the woman who brought the news about the baby, you have a bouncing baby boy. It was customary in that culture and society that you would sort of give him a tip or a reward or or some token of appreciation. You know how like in our culture and society, I guess less and less, but in our culture and society, when you go to a restaurant, and if a, a server gives you great service, what do you give that server? A tip. That's exactly right. In this culture and society, when a baby was being born and you brought the news that you have a healthy, bouncy baby do boy, you gave that person a reward. And now he says, let that man be cursed. Instead of giving him a reward, somebody should have slapped him right in the face. Someone should have just spit. What? What's happened? Jeremiah's just been born. That's what you get. I'm, I'm spitting in your face. This is not good news like you might have thought. This is bad news. He curses the one who brought the news to his father. Some commentators have suggested... <laughs> They come up with all kinds of wild things that they talk about in the text that I don't see it anywhere in the text. One Bible commentator said, 
Yes, this was a man who was making fun of Jeremiah, and it was the very man who had earlier told his father the good news of the birth of Jeremiah, but now he's making fun of Jeremiah. And I go, that doesn't seem to be in the text to me. You can try and make it say all kinds of things, but whatever it is saying, it's saying, I'm hurt, I'm depressed, and I don't know how I'm going to go forward. And in verse 16 it says, And let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. The, the, the cities that he's talking about is found in Genesis chapter 19. He's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent or repent. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon. Basically what Jeremiah is doing is he's asking God to judge the man the same way he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Obviously, show no pity. Literally, in the Hebrew text it says, and he did not repent or he showed no pity. In other words, he was going to execute the judgment. And in verse 17 it says, because he did not kill me from the womb. That my mother might have been my grave and her womb always enlarged with me. Jeremiah expresses the wish that he'd never been born. He actually expresses the wish. I wish that I had been stillborn in my mother's uterus. I wish that her uterus would have become my grave. Have you ever felt that way? So empty, so dark, so alone, so hopeless, so like nothing really could possibly ever be different than how you're feeling right at that very moment. And in verse 18, it says, why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame? You may not understand that verse, but let me help you out with it just quickly. Why indeed? Do you understand what Jeremiah is asking? Why was I ever born? What is the stinking reason that I am on this filthy planet? What in the world am I doing here? And by the way, in the text, Jeremiah expected labor. Toil. And I know people are born and they work. It makes perfect sense that I should have to work. Jeremiah expected to work, toil, labor. Jeremiah expected sorrow. He knew that we were in a wicked world and a broken world and a difficult world. But shame, shame, shame was not something that he expected. You know what the difference between guilt and shame is? Guilt is when you do something wrong and you know you've done something wrong. Shame isn't that you've done something wrong, but there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. It isn't so much that you've done something wrong, but rather everything about you is broken. Your mind is broken and your heart is broken and your spirit is shattered. That you, there is just something so fundamentally messed up that nothing can fix it. So why is Jeremiah so filled with despair? Why is he so filled with shame? Is it because he's unable to prevent the coming judgment? Why is he filled with despair? Could it be because he questions his call from God and the persecution of his enemies? Could it be that he is thinking because the people won't turn from their sin and because they won't turn from their disobedience, that whatever it is that he is supposed to do, that God has told him to do, that it's a big, fat, stinking waste of time. That it's like a gigantic exercise 
in futility. And Jeremiah is wondering, how can I be faithful to the God who called me? And how can I be faithful to the message that he's given me? And how can I be faithful knowing that God is true and that redemption is true and that the future is going to happen exactly how God says it's going to happen? So how do we as Christians face ridicule and persecution? We do what Jeremiah does. We turn to the Lord in prayer. We cry out to him. We find our hiding place in him. We understand that there will come times in dark moments where only the Lord can deliver us from that dungeon and that trial. He's our refuge. He's our strong tower. Jesus is our hiding place. When I was a kid, we used to sing that song. You are my hiding place. You always fill my life with songs of deliverance. In the New Testament, we're given several symbols of the coming judgment. That day of the Lord is called a sickle in Revelation 14, 14, a dragnet in Matthew 13. The book of Isaiah, it's called a wine press in Isaiah 63. In the book of Daniel, we see this picture of a stone that falls from heaven. In the book of Revelation, we see bowls and trumpets and horses and a great white throne where the God of the universe sits and decides. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.8, He will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus. We're in trouble. He'll keep you strong. I feel defiled. He'll make you blameless. I'm panicking. He'll be your confidence and your strength. Walter Hilton wrote, quote, When you see your enemies, when your enemies see that you're so determined that neither sickness, fancies, poverty, life, death, nor sins discourage you, but that you will continue to seek the love of Jesus and nothing else by continuing your prayer and other spiritual works, they'll grow enraged and not spare you the most cruel abuse. What will happen when you turn your back on everything and everyone and say the only thing that matters is Jesus? The Bible is what matters. The gospel is what matters. Jesus is what matters. Salvation is what matters. Redemption is what matters. No wonder Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, said, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Jeremiah was pressed and crushed and perplexed and despair. And persecuted. And he felt abandoned. And he felt struck down. But the big question is, is he going to make it? Well, there's another chapter next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you prepare our hearts. Lord, we know that Jesus was crushed so we wouldn't have to be. Lord, we know that Jesus experienced pain and horror so that our sins could be forgiven. So all of the things that estrange us from you could be taken care of. And Lord, I pray for that man, that woman who feels that the distance is very dark and deep. Lord, I pray that you'd close the gap. Lord, I pray that they would see Jesus as the real bridge that he really is. That we can cross over from death into life. And that we can cross over from guilt and shame. 
wholeness and wellness that our hearts can find meaning, purpose, redemption, and hope. Lord, like Jeremiah of old, we might find ourselves in dark moments asking the question, what am I doing here? But Lord, you formed each and every one of us. Lord, you've given each and every one of us a gift and a plan and a purpose and a place. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to that plan and in that purpose in the exact place that you've called us to. And Lord, again, for that person who needs to have a right relationship with you, Lord, I pray that they would pray that simple prayer. That I know that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. And I place my confidence and my trust and my faith and my hope in Jesus. So prepare my heart as we have communion. In Jesus' name, amen.